Trump on his way to Texas, but Democrats doing some counter-programming. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, editor at QuorumReport.com, and here, as always, is ace political reporter at the Houston Chronicle, Jeremy Wallace. How are you, sir? Uh, I'm here and reporting for duty no matter where on the border I have to be in the next four or five days. I like that you always say that you're doing well, but your answer always starts with a sigh. Like, yeah. mm, you know, I, I'm here. Um, I'm going to say this on the front end instead of the back end this time. If you love this show, you should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, however you listen to podcasts. Give us the best rating that you possibly can. Five stars or don't or don't do anything. You know what your mama always said. If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Believe me, in our reviews, that is not the rule people adhere to. But it's it's OK. <laughs> Whatever. Let's start with President Trump. He's coming to Texas. Right. And just like when the Democrats were running against each other for president, um, the Democrats now are doing what I'm calling counter programming uh, with Trump coming here. When is he here? Is it uh, Wednesday? Yeah, he'll be here Wednesday morning with uh, Greg Abbott. Right. At Abbott's request, uh, Trump had said that uh, Abbott invited him to the border to check out what's going on there now. And Abbott and Trump are saying that now that Biden is president, uh, the whole thing is a disaster down there. Even though when Trump was in office, there was no wall built, at least not much additional wall built. Uh, But Abbott and Trump said at that time the border was in good shape. So now we need to build a wall. And Abbott is setting aside $250 million in your tax dollars to build it. So Democrats on the way. Uh, Vice President Harris, who previously had left it sort of open as to whether she was coming to the border. She said that she would, but they didn't have a... Uh, a strict timetable or anything. And also uh, the first lady is coming down, right, Jeremy? Yep. Yeah, we have uh, Jill Biden and Doug Emhoff, uh, uh, Kamala Harris's husband, will both be in Houston on Tuesday, uh, again, a day before that. You know, but they'll be, they're going to be talking about vaccinations and COVID-19 mm-hmm. and the, you know, the administration's gotcha. response to it. So they won't be talking border. But, yeah, that's a, a lot of attention all of a sudden from Mm -hmm. the current administration and the previous administration in a five-day window all of a sudden, right? I love it when we are center stage. Now, when Vice President Harris was in Guatemala earlier this month, that was a couple of weeks ago, she had been asked, and and I thought this was a fair question from Lester Holt uh, of NBC News, she had been asked if she was going to come to the Texas-Mexico border or the United States border with Mexico, not maybe not Texas specifically. Um, she talked with Holt first about the reasons that she was visiting the Northern Triangle countries, which is to talk about these push factors. Why does anybody move from one place to another? It's because life is not so great here. It may be terrible in one place, and you think it'll be better in a different place. What she wants to get to is the root causes of all the migration that we're seeing. Here's the thing. Uh, I've been working on this issue for a very long time. And the kind of violence and danger that is associated with that trek, especially when we're talking about from Guatemala through Mexico to the United States, it is extremely dangerous. And the reason that I am in Guatemala is to address the reasons people leave home, flee. Knowing that the people who are here for generations, or if we know the, the history of Guatemala for centuries, they want to stay. They don't want to leave. Now, this is the part of the interview, Jeremy, that her critics seized on. And I think, like I said, it's a fair question. He asked if she's going to come to the United States border with Mexico. And you've heard the first part of this answer over and over again. It's where she just sort of flippantly says, well, I haven't been to Europe either, and I don't understand what point you're making. <laughs> so, so Fox News Channel will play that clip, which is about three or four seconds. They'll play that 10,000 times. Yeah. She didn't have an answer. But, but let me play the whole answer for you, because I think the entire context is important. Do you have any plans to visit the border? I, I'm here in Guatemala today. I, at some point, you know, I, we are going to the border. We've been to the border. So this whole this whole this whole thing about the border, we've been to the border. We've been to the border. You haven't been to the border. And I haven't been to Europe. And I I don't I don't understand the point that you're making. I'm not discounting the importance of the border. Well, I I, I mentioned it because even I I know Republicans have certainly come at you on this. But Democratic Congressman Cuellar 
as a border district has said to the, you and the president, come. You need, I care you need to see about, this. Listen, I care about what's happening at the border. I'm in Guatemala because my focus is dealing with the root causes of migration. There may be uh, some who think that that is not important, but it is my firm belief that if we care about what's happening at the border, we better care about the root causes and address them. And so that's what I'm doing. Why is that a point that seems to be missed in all of this, Jeremy? I have seen, and I've been asked about this on television and elsewhere, uh, the, the, over and over again, a question about a wall is the only thing anybody wants to talk about. And that means that President Trump, I guess to his credit, has completely shaped the narrative about how people talk about the border. It's like either, either you're for a wall or you think it's stupid, and there's no other way to talk about it. And what she's saying is, forget about the wall. We already have physical barriers along the international boundary in places where it makes sense. For example, in El Paso, in El Paso County, where she is today, and in some other places, uh, some limited uh, barrier along uh, the border in Laredo, for example, uh, and in Brownsville, in the McAllen area. Do we need more wall, or can we have a broader discussion about this? If people are doing better in the countries where they came, where they come from, where people originate, if life is better for them there, then they won't have a reason to come here. That's what she would like to talk about, but it seems like the narrative is only about a wall and whether you want to build one or not. Yeah, exactly. And when she landed in El Paso this morning, you know, she started talking about those root causes again. They asked, well, why are you here now? And she goes, well, I'm here following up on the, you know, trying to figure out what the root causes are, particularly uh, from for people in uh, that Golden Triangle area of Honduras, you know, uh, Guatemala, you know, and, and why they're coming you know, in such large numbers right now. Look, we're used to, a, a, in Texas, a traditional a number of, you know, Mexican you know, migrants that, that are going to be encountered at the border. We're used to that. But what's different about what we're seeing now in this surge uh, has been the influx from those, you know, golden triangle, you know, countries. And I think Harris is trying to continue to make that the case even today. And she, you know, it's funny, she pushed back at reporters when they asked, are you here because of the Republicans? And she mm -hmm. said, no, no, this was always part of my plan to be here. Uh, that's not what she said to Lester Holt. <laughs> she didn't say it's always part of our plan to be in, you know, El Paso in just mm -hmm. a week or two. Uh, no, she didn't say that. She, you know, today she's saying that. So I can see where Republicans see her as fodder from the way she kind of makes her answers on this issue. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, there is a, a, a rationality to the, you know, like you pointed out with El Paso. El Paso has 40 something miles of wall currently mm -hmm. fencing sure. wall whatever you want to call it right. and yet they're still seeing a surge of you know border encounters uh with border patrol you know that's very similar to what we're seeing in other parts of the you know, texas border so they're still getting that despite a wall being there so now what do you do about that and i think that's the real challenge here yeah just to make one thing clear we're talking about the northern triangle yeah, not the Golden Triangle. The, the people are going to think you're talking about Beaumont. Um, no. <laughs> so, I, so and 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 I think on these answers, you're exactly right. They seize on these answers because uh, Vice President Harris has not learned a lesson that that I haven't learned either, which is to not laugh at your own jokes. Yeah, right. She sort of laughs when she says, "Oh, I haven't been to Europe either. <laughs> I don't understand the the point that you're making." We, we all know what point he's making, but but the point you're making is that and go figure. The border and a discussion about the border should be nuanced. It, the, the, the discussion changes just based on which part of the border you go to, yep. right? Because there are different factors at play uh, for as, as far as who's coming in and why they're coming in. Now, you could put up a border wall. Um, you could stand Border Patrol or troops, if you like, from Brownsville all the way to San Diego, and people would still be able to make their way into the United States illegally. Do you know how? How's that? Well, lots of ways. For one, uh, people can uh, fly into the United States uh, undocumented. That does happen. Uh, more common, though, is to be stuffed into the back of 18-wheelers at legal ports of entry. Have you ever yeah. been down there and seen the x-rays of those trucks? Oh, yeah. I did this, um, it was, I think it was in uh, 05, 06, uh, took a border trip, and uh, in the Laredo sector, they showed me um, the pictures of, as they moved those 18-wheelers, and they can't x-ray all of them. Because if they did, do you know what that would do to slow down commerce in the United States? 
in Texas specifically and in the United States, they can't x-ray them all, right? They pull them over sort of randomly for, for checks. Um, and what they do is they run this the giant x-ray machine. It's really impressive that they can run a semi through. They show you these pictures, and I'm here, the, the pictures, it's heartbreaking stuff. It looks like insects. You know, packed. If you've ever seen, you know, picture of like a uh, an ant hill that's been cut in half, yeah. right? You can see you can see through it. It's it, people look the same way, stuffed into these uh, vehicle. I mean, uh, into vehicle parts. People stuffed into the dashboard of a truck. Uh, one one way that they found one guy was he was stuffed into the dashboard of a pickup truck, and they opened the glove compartment and see his face looking out. Um, another uh, picture that I saw had all these folks who were stuffed into the visor that's over an 18-wheeler's cab. People okay. stuffed in there. People stuffed into the wheel wells, which it could be not. It couldn't be any less safe. And these are people who are spending six thousand dollars a piece to make this trip right and people will not only these coyotes they will not only charge them six thousand dollars but if they get caught and sent back to mexico they'll charge the exact same person the exact same amount to take the exact same trip again so the border is just secure enough that only these are the folks who are able to you know make things happen along the border the cartels and the coyotes right it used to be that farm workers could move pretty easily across the border and then you had um uh, 9-11 happen and a lot of the borders shut down, a lot more security than it was. Think about the way the airport used to be versus the way it is now, yep. right? Before 9-11 and after 9-11. Well, Don Huffines, who is running against Greg Abbott in the Republican primary for governor, he says he's going to just shut down all those ports of entry all along the Texas-Mexico border. He was on WFAA with Jason Whiteley saying this, and Whiteley asks a very good follow-up question. Listen. I'm going to, there's 25 crossings over the river that right. Texas has. I'm going to close every single one of those in one day because I'm the actual Republican running and I'm actually going to solve this problem once and for all. I'm going to close those crossings down for all inbound commercial traffic from Mexico. We're going to make Mexico acquiesce economically to secure their side of the river and stop these cartels. But wouldn't that hurt Texas businesses if you shut down commercial traffic? Yes, but Texas, here's the thing. I'm going to communicate to Mexico, and they know it. They need us a lot more than we need them. And this is a proven tactic that can work, and it's going to work. Huffine's campaign this morning was mocking Greg Abbott for wanting to spend $250 million on a border wall as a down payment because, as his campaign said, they did the math. And uh, a border wall is not cheap if if you're doing it right. And who knows what the change orders would be on this. But if you're building, we're not just talking chain link fence. We're talking about an actual wall, a big physical barrier along the international boundary. Huffine said, well, that would be about 52 feet worth of wall. But Jeremy, as you have pointed out, um, Abbott wasn't really talking about the state building its own wall until Don Huffine started talking about it. And you've seen uh, his billboards that say finish the wall and all of that. Yeah, exactly. If you're, you know, cruising to Padre Island this summer, you're going to see, you know, Don Huffines, you know, billboards, no matter which way you're going, (laughs) you're going to see them say, build the wall, finish the wall, you know, and so he's clearly, you know, trying to seize on this. And, and, and look at from Abbott's perspective, there's no way he's going to let Huffines like, you know, you know, have that space on right. that right mm-hmm. side talking about that. So guess what happens? You know, we have Abbott saying he's going to put money into the wall. He's, you know, talking about, you know, having Trump with him on the wall. He's got mm-hmm. Trump's endorsement to talk about the wall. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> this is pretty much the primary at this point where Abbott's yeah. going to make clear to anybody who is like within three inches of him that, you know, this is going to be about the wall, and he's going to own this issue and not let Huffines get that space. He believes. Yeah. I am waiting to see, and they'll move on to some other issue at some point. The same folks who are running uh, Huffines uh, race for governor, it's the same folks who ran uh, his race when he ran for state senate in Dallas years ago. I guess that was 2014. And what they did was they had a pretty strict messaging calendar. Uh, it was, First of all, they said that um, John Corona, the incumbent senator at the time, who was defeated in that primary, uh, they said he was Obama's favorite state senator, right? Because because there had been a bill 
years ago that was heard in a committee when Corona was the transportation chairman. Uh, Royce West, African-American state senator from Dallas County, had proposed that part of I-30 through Dallas County be renamed the Barack Obama Presidential Expressway. And this wasn't going to pass, but there was a hearing on it. And Corona did a favor for West of just having the hearing. But they didn't even vote it out of a committee. But there were, to your point about the billboards, there were billboards all over that district in Dallas that had the name John Corona, the O in Corona was the Obama O. And oh, it said he, he wants to build an Obama highway. So I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm trying to figure out how they could say somehow that Greg Abbott is Barack Obama's favorite governor or something like Just you think, you think I'm maybe going too far with this. Just stay tuned. We've got many months of this uh, to go. Yes. Um, you went to this big voting rights rally in uh, Austin on Sunday, right? Oh, yeah. It was a nice, average, super hot, 100-degree day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And about how many people were there? Safe to say hundreds, maybe 200, 300, yeah, something well, like that? I, I would say thousands. There, there was definitely a couple of thousand people really? like in that area. Uh, it was hard to kind of see everybody from my vantage point, okay. but it grew as I was there. And so yeah, I'm not right. sure what the total official number could have been. Uh, yeah. It's, and it's a risky thing for a journalist to try to guess how many people are at any rally. Uh, the people who put on the rally will tell you that you're wrong. Their opponents yep. will tell you that you're wrong. I saw some I was not there, so I saw some pictures of it, um, and the pictures I saw might have been at a, at a portion of it when people were just maybe starting to show up. Uh, let's give people a flavor for this, what, what it was like to be there. We like to take you to the scene of the news. Uh, Charlie Bonner is with a group called Move Texas, and he was there firing up the crowd. We have spent hundreds of hours in this building behind us, turning out thousands of young Texans to speak out against racist voter suppression. And we're doing it because it is on our generation to finish the fight of those before us. We have a moral obligation to win this fight. Now, he was just the warm-up act, of course. The headliner was former Congressman Beto O'Rourke. This is what democracy looks like. And this is what fighting for democracy feels like. He told the crowd, it's an uphill fight, but it's one worth waging. We're going to do all that we can with what we have, where we are right now to save this democracy. We're going to fight on every front. We are going to push without rest until the right to vote is secured in America. And this democracy represents each and every single one of us. Representative Trey Martinez Fisher, a Democrat from San Antonio, was, of course, one of the Democratic state representatives to walk out on the last day that bills as conference committee reports could pass. And so they killed Senate Bill 7 that way. That was the big omnibus elections bill. Some people hate the word omnibus. I love it, but that's because I'm a dork. The (laughs) elections bill that even many Republicans, Jeremy, have disavowed after the session was over. A lot of Republicans in the House said that there were provisions in there that they have no idea how they got there. At at one point, they said that some of the stuff was a typo uh, as far as the uh, time that people could early vote on Sundays, um, you know, affecting the souls to the polls programs that uh, are very popular in the African-American community. And then, of course, the language about overturning an election without any evidence of, a, of you know, any fraud. One Republican said to me that they had an idea where that came from. It sounds like, you know, QAnon, uh, Stop the Steal, Roger Stone policy uh, prescriptions in some way to try to avenge Trump somehow. I have, I have distilled this down to three words, Jeremy. Why are we going through this ridiculous exercise when Lieutenant Governor Patrick himself has said that in Texas— we have secured the vote and increased turnout year after year, election after election. Three words. Avenge Trump somehow. And it's the somehow. What It really matters here because Republicans never agreed on what the bill was supposed to look like, which is what put Democrats in position to do what they did, which was break quorum. We've talked about this many times. Now, Martinez Fisher said that the focus now that SB7 is dead and we have special sessions coming up, the focus now has to be on what the Democratic majority in D.C. is willing to do on voting rights. We walked out of this House proudly, but it was the equivalent of crawling on our knees, begging Washington, D.C., 
Give us federal voting rights relief. There are two bills that they're talking about in Washington, Jeremy. H.R. 1 is the For the People Act, which I have described this way, and Democrats don't necessarily like it. Uh, But it's basically a liberal wish list of anything you ever wanted as a Democrat to be uh, done when it comes to elections in the United States. And I get why they would want that. But it's sort of a feel-good thing, and some insiders in Washington have told me that that bill is basically dead. It's not going to pass. They're still talking about it, though. We'll see what happens. Anything can happen, right? Uh, But the one of more consequence is H.R. 4, which is the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which would reinstate preclearance by the Department of Justice for states like Texas. Here's one way to put it. If the uh, Democrats in Washington don't pass something that reinstates preclearance, which I know they've got to work on the language about that. Uh, That was gutted from the Voting Rights Act, Section 5, uh, by the Supreme Court, so they want to get the uh, constitutional questions correct. Uh, But if they don't do that, they're leaving members of their own party in states like Texas to defend the Alamo, right, when it comes to redistricting and bills like Senate Bill 7. Now, John Cornyn, our senior Republican senator, says that what Democrats are trying to do with all this is overrule state legislatures on how states run their elections. Well, it's pretty clear that S-1 is a effort to hijack the state election laws for partisan advantage here in Washington, D.C., in the Congress. The Democrats have created a false narrative that suggests that some of these state election law changes are somehow designed uh, to prevent minorities from casting their ballot. That's already illegal under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, and it's blatantly false. The fact of the matter is many of the reforms that they're complaining about are even more generous than the, vote, than the laws in states that they represent. For example, um, the deadline to request a mail-in ballot in Georgia is 11 days before the election. In New York, represented by Senator Schumer, you, you uh, cannot request a mail-in ballot until a week before the election. This is the talking point that we've heard over and over again, which is to say, you know, there are certain states where, and some of them run by Democrats, where the voting laws are a little tougher than they are in some other places, which there may be some truth to that. Uh, But when you talk to elections law experts, one thing that they will tell you is that if you're talking about public policy prescriptions for elections, the comparison you should make is this. Under Senate Bill 7, for example, Would the law they're talking about, the one they're proposing, would it make it harder to vote in Texas or not? Not whether it would make it harder than it is to vote in New York or any other place. And also keep this in mind. Some of the states that Republican senators are mentioning are those that would be uh, under preclearance restrictions, uh, you know, if if that part of the voting rights uh, legislation is passed, uh, but others aren't. And this is the reason. There are certain states, and this is the way the law was written years ago, very powerful piece of legislation, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, said that those states where black people were subjected, specifically black people subjected, uh, to things like guessing how many jelly beans there were in a jar or having to name all the state capitals, you know, alphabetically, when white people were not asked to do that, you would have to do that to pass a little test to be able to register to vote. And then something you've brought up in the past, Jeremy, where in places like Texas, if somebody went to vote as an African-American, they would have their picture taken and it would be sent to their employer and they would lose their job because they had gone to vote, right? There are places where that was more prevalent than others. Now, Republicans say, we don't do that anymore. In places like Texas, we don't do that anymore. I have said a version of this before. I'm going to repeat it. In Senate Bill 7, under the Senate proposal pushed by Lieutenant Governor Patrick and Senator Brian Hughes, it wasn't in the 50s or 60s that they proposed doing away with polling places in minority areas in the state. It was 2021. It was just a couple of months ago that they were talking about doing that. So when people say, oh, well, this isn't the kind of stuff we do anymore and it's not fair, uh, I think there's at least a debate that could be had in Washington. And what we saw, Jeremy, this week is even though the Democrats failed in their effort to move legislation in the Senate, the Democrats now seem to be more unified than they were before in Washington about this, which may mean there are other changes on the horizon that might add up to some legislation you know, actually passing. We'll see. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think what we've seen uh, since the walkout is the Democrats trying to seize upon a, a, a momentum 
that they have found in Texas and in D.C., and it's fed both ways, right? And so we have this situation where, you know, what Beto O'Rourke was essentially doing on Sunday was using his platform, but trying to share it with all of the people who were part of, you know, the the walkout. It's like, you know, it was people like you know, Jasmine Crockett and mm-hmm. Trey Martinez Fisher, uh, you know, who were given, you know, lots of time to speak at this rally on Sunday. He was trying to, I think, share the spotlight with the people uh, who were very active in the fight and trying to keep the energy from that going. Remember, those folks were just in D.C., you know, meeting with Vice President Harris and getting time at the White House, you know, really good photo ops for these Democrats. And you can feel, you know, them trying to build basically a political bench that can go beyond this moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, as, and it's funny because I asked, you know, Beto O'Rourke, so, so are you running for governor or not? You know, mm-hmm. he's, and you he's asked like, him point blank, you asked yeah. him. Yeah, and, and, and he, he leaned over and was like, I am focused on finishing this first. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, he wants to see this through. And by this, he was talking about, you know, this fight right now on the voter rights stuff uh, that I think will obviously carry on through the special session, but continue on in D.C. as well as they try to figure out how they're going to get those bills done. Yeah, the problem is the congressional calendar kind of stinks. You know, it's like, let's remember, like, all of August is going to be gone for Congress. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to be meeting. They always have their August recess. Oh, so right. mm-hmm. uh, anything that they would do on the voter rights issues is going to have to happen really quickly. You know, they're only going to have, a you know, some short time in July to kind of do this. And it's going to be after probably the special session. You know, in, in Texas. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of confluence of like how all this is going to come together in some sort of nominal way. But the thing is, this is going to be with us all summer. You know, mm-hmm. it's like this is this topic is going to be with us all summer. And you're going to try to you're going to see Democrats try to build off of this to get to the midterm elections because the energy that they found you know, is good for the Democratic activist base particularly. And I think that's what Beto O'Rourke was trying to you know, keep going over the weekend when he brought everybody up to Austin. You know, you had, you know, Julian mm-hmm. Castro in there. You had, you know, Royce West, the state senator. Like, everybody was getting a chance to kind of share this stage with him. And it was kind of interesting to him, like, to see him sharing it all. The Texas Democratic uh, House Caucus uh, in the Texas House, they are now suing. This is some breaking news here. It's an outgrowth of this elections controversy. Suing to try to reverse the line item veto of funding for the legislative branch in Texas. It's kind of nuts to think that we're even talking about this. Uh, After the Democrats walked out that last evening that bills could be passed in the Texas House and killed Senate Bill 7, this big elections bill, um, the governor threatened and I guess we'd say promised because he did it uh, with his line item veto in the budget he X'd out the funding for the legislature. Now, I'm told that he's thought of doing this before, back in 2019. Uh, we had reported, uh, our sources uh, indicated that he had told staffers a couple of years ago that he had thought about doing this. Speaks to his um, overall philosophy of governing, which is that just he should do it and nobody else. <laughs> there shouldn't even be another branch of government that has anything to say about it. Um, it, it people ask, why would he do that? Well, that's why. Right. You saw him playing with executive orders like they were toys for an entire year, which, if you think that's some liberally biased thing to say, it was the Republican Party chairman, Alan West, who criticized him the most harshly about it for what? For the last six to eight months or more. And a lot of Republicans very upset with him about that. Uh, This is the headline right now at QuorumReport.com. Breaking Texas Democrats asked the Texas Supreme Court to void Abbott's veto. Of legislative funding, Rafael Anchia, who's a Democratic state representative from Dallas, he was on MSNBC talking about this whole controversy with Abbott saying that legislators and staffers would not be paid, and Anchia offered this analogy. Well, imagine for a second if Joe Biden was unhappy with Congress and he zeroed out Congress's budget. First of all, it's unconstitutional, and that's what's That's what uh, Greg Abbott has done. He has defunded the legislative branch, which eliminates the checks and balances that are constitutionally protected by the federal constitution and our state constitution. We can hold out and our our staff members on both sides of the aisle. They're they're the ones that are going to suffer. 
They're the ones that uh, have sick parents at home that need to put uh, food on the table, take care of their kids. But he has callously and unconstitutionally zeroed out our budgets. And um, the hypocrisy of it all is, is really uh, amazing. Someone who uh, touts himself as uh, a constitutional conservative, ignoring the state and federal constitution. Now, for the lawyers who are listening, and believe me, we have some, Jeremy. Yeah. The, the lawyers love this show. Believe me. <laughs> um, this is not something where they're suing Abbott. That's what I at first thought, that they would be suing Abbott. That, that's not it. He's not named as a defendant. This is a uh, what they call a writ of mandamus. Basically, they're just asking the court to do something. They're, they're at, and they're going straight to the Texas Supreme Court. This doesn't go. Th- I would have thought maybe this would be filed in state district court in Travis County. It's the way a lot of these things play out. Uh, this goes st- just straight to the st- uh, Texas Supreme Court, which, of course, is populated by all Republicans. So you can at least make an educated guess how this would go, but but we'll see. Um, what they're asking is simply for Abbott's line item veto to be declared unconstitutional, therefore voided, and that would mean that the state government employees and the legislators would get their paychecks like normal. Anchia was asked about the lawsuit and whether or not he thinks they can win that. Yep, lawsuit is uh, forthcoming shortly. I expect us to win that lawsuit. Uh, and then and then we're going to be back in a legislative session, potentially, where we uh, both Republicans and Democrats can uh, let the governor know how we feel about his uh, defunding the legislative branch. Uh, I, I, I suspect that the executive branch may have uh, some comeuppance that's coming its way. One thing I find interesting about this, Jeremy, is with some exceptions, I don't hear a lot of Republicans saying that the governor did the right thing in this instance. Not a, not a lot of Republicans in the Texas legislature. I've heard some other Republicans say that. The Speaker of the House, Dade Phelan, has said that he does not agree with this. He said that we ought to slow down and consider who's going to be hurt by it. Phelan, of course, is a former staffer, somebody who started his career legislatively in the House copy room. Uh, you have Lieutenant Governor Patrick, uh, who has said that he fully endorses what Abbott is doing, because of course he does, um, and says that this is the way to get Democrats to show up for the legislative session, which would raise, I think, some questions, maybe maybe legally, but ethically. I have never seen this before, where the governor potentially could do this. He could say, okay, look, I'm going to, on the special session call, ask you to pass an elections bill, a bill on transgender youth in sports, a bill on critical race theory, some of the other things that we've been talking about a lot here. He could say, I want you to pass those first, and then I'll add the topic of reinstating legislative funding, which is an incredible way to use that power, right? I mean, let's make no mistake. When the governor puts a topic on the call for the legislature, that's an exercise of his power. As he said over and over again, when he called Dan Patrick goofy, for suggesting that they should have an immediate special session. it well, excuse, uh, Let me back up. He said what Patrick said was goofy. I don't need a call from Sherry Sylvester or anybody in that office. Anyway, so we got it right. Abbott said that what he said was goofy. What he then said was, I, as the governor, am the only one who can designate what topics they can talk about, which is accurate. That is an exercise of his power. And so that raises some questions about whether or not that would amount to legislative bribery, which would be illegal. It wouldn't be the first time that a governor in Texas had been indicted and, and put it this way, Jeremy had been indicted um, while they have aspirations of being the next president. Uh, But with all the stuff that we're talking about with the border wall, this fight with the Democrats, um, I think, you know, from a Republican primary standpoint, all of that adds up pretty well for Abbott, right? I think Republican primary voters would like the narrative that is being laid out here. Um, But at the same time, uh, you know, I wonder uh, where we end up a year from now, two years from now, if it's still uh, presidential aspirations that we're talking about, uh, how much gas is in the tank here? What do you think? Well, yeah. And, 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 you know, for me, the, the issue that Abbott has opened up is, is a, a precedent setting, moment for the governor's office, right? Mm-hmm. To actually X out the legislative's, another branch's funding. You know, it's like, sure, it's one thing when he's doing it and he's trying to aim for Democrats, but what mm-hmm. happens if Texas gets a Democratic governor at some right. point? Uh, we've had them before. It's not like yep. it's, you know, it's never, ever going to happen ever again in the history of time. Right. It's there like, is precedent for that. Yeah, exactly. There is a chance that there will be a Democratic governor and a Republican legislature at some point. And mm-hmm. what's to stop that Democratic governor from saying, hey, I'm going to do what Abbott did. 
I'm going to X out all your funding because I hate all the legislation you're sending me. <laughs> it's like, so no one will be funded in the legislature. I'll line item veto that every single session now. It's just like, I just wonder if like from a constitutional standpoint, you know, what the Supreme Court, you know, is going to say here on this. Because mm-hmm. clearly the governor has the right to line item veto. But the question is, does it, you know, intrude on the separation of powers when something mm-hmm. like this happens. Could Governor Abbott do this to the Texas Supreme Court if he right. wanted to? You know, It'd could he a- like X out their funding if he gets upset with their ruling here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it would be. I mean, if the if the lawyers for the Democrats don't make that exact argument you just, that you just made, I would think it would be malpractice. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's just another branch of government. Right. I'm, yep. I'm not an attorney. I don't play one here on the podcast, but. Um, but that would be a legitimate question. And, and all of this comes out of this question about the elections bill, which I was watching some of the national coverage about it this week. And it was a little frustrating, I think, because I think national uh, coverage is rightly focused on the fact that the reason they haven't passed elections bills in Congress is because Democrats can't get on the same page. Yeah. Right. It's an internal fight within the Democratic Party. You got Joe Manchin, who's the you know, one guy in the Senate who goes along with the Republicans more than they, they actually have. A few who feel more like he does, maybe they're not as outspoken. Christian Cinema from Arizona, and then one of the powers of being a senator is you don't really have to say a whole lot. You can just agree with them sort of quietly. So I think they probably have four or five Democrats who are probably more in line with them as far as not changing rules to move forward with anything. But it's the Democrats who can't get their act together, uh, if you want to put it that way, and pass something on elections in Washington. Yeah. In Texas, it's the same thing. It's just the Republicans. Right. I mean, if 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 the speaker, the lieutenant governor and the governor had been on the same page about what that elections bill should look like, it would have passed back in April yeah, or early May. They could have easily done that. They could have said he could have made it an emergency item, which he did, um, and they could have passed it in March yeah. right? if they knew what it was, if they knew what it was supposed to do. But Republicans throughout this whole thing, right back to that three words, avenge Trump somehow. They don't know what the somehow is supposed to be. Yeah. Trump talks a lot about voter ID. Well, as you pointed out, we've had that for 10 years in Texas. Yep. You know, we're good. Lieutenant Governor Patrick says we have increased turnout and we have secured the vote. Well, to me, that means that we're good then, right? Why do we need another law on this? Avenge Trump somehow. Keep that in your mind, dear listener. Yeah, and, and they had like, it's funny, even in those, you know, those closing weeks of the session, there was some basic general agreement on some of the the concepts that they wanted in that bill. Mm-hmm. But then they just, they couldn't help themselves. They had to keep adding. It's like <laughs> yeah. they had to like, you know, slip in, you know, the souls to the polls piece. You know, it's like to, yes. to limit the hours of when souls to the polls could happen on a Sunday, you know, which was just... You know, you could just see it on the faces of particularly, you know, the black Democrats in the Texas legislature saying, why? Why would you do this to us on the last 24 to 48 hours of this session and make us have to do this? You know, it's like that's what triggered this all in the end. And they just kind of stopped with like some of the, the, you know, some of the general restrictions on ballot harvesting that they were all mm-hmm. worried about, you know, or, you know, just had some, uh, you know, some general ideas that they could have hooked on to yeah. and just like, and, and play it how you want to in a primary mm-hmm. and say, look, we defended Trump, you know, cause we right. went after mail ballot fraud. We blah, secured blah, blah. the ballot. And yeah. All that. It's like, yeah. but instead they just had to go one step further and turn into a democratic issue where, 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 you know, Democrats like Boris Miles and Royce West, you know, had to sit there and say, these people are coming for my community. Right. They're actually fighting to make it harder for people in my community to vote on a Sunday. They're aiming for us. And it's like right. they just turned what could have been like a bad bill into one that was absolutely offensive if you live in some of these communities. Yeah, 100 percent. And, you know, as I said, if if, if, if um, the For the People Act is a liberal wish list of everything a far left person wanted to do about elections, Senate Bill 7 turned into a QAnon wish list, yeah. you know, for, for everything that, that, you know, President Trump's supporters ever would have wanted to do. Uh, one last thing here. I love this. We now have a three-way matchup for Texas Attorney General in the GOP primary. And I think this is going to get really interesting. This is a story about my Texas. 
I'm Eva Guzman. I was a Texas judge for 22 years, more than half of them on the Texas Supreme Court. But my story isn't just about this place. It's about this place where my siblings and I went to college. Our mom was here too. Not here, but here. Working hard, doing what she could to help our family of nine get ahead. Now, when she said, he, not here, but here, so uh, Guzman in her ad, this is her big kickoff ad. You can see it on YouTube. It's at quorumreport.com. She's kicking off her race for attorney general. She's standing there at the University of Houston, and she says, you know, I was here, and my mom was here, too. Her mom wasn't there in the classroom. Her mom was working as a janitor, you know, up the hall. And her father was a welder. They're blue-collar people growing up in the east end of Houston, Right, as, as coming from it's story, it's sort of the rags to riches story, right? You, you go from, you know, having really nothing uh, in one of the poorest communities uh, in the state, and you're on the top civil court in the state, at, at, you know, at, at the end of the uh, judicial career there. Um, and here's something you don't see at all in her ad, Jeremy. Unlike the current attorney general, Ken Paxton. Unlike the other guy who's already challenging him, Land Commissioner George P. Bush, in Guzman's ad and in her information so far that she's put out about her campaign, there's nothing about former President Trump, right? You got Paxton, who sued on behalf of Trump to try to overturn the election. You've got George P. Bush, who is saying that his entire family is wrong about Trump, and he's the only one who's right about Trump, that Trump likes George P. Bush because... Bush likes him, but he's the Bush that got it right. <laughs> I mean, the stuff is, you, you can't make it up, right? So I think it adds another dynamic. Maybe she's, uh, maybe she's not able to win this thing, but, but let me say this, and who knows, because there's, there's a long way to go. We're just getting started here. Um, the fact that she has Texans for lawsuit reform supporting her, that, yep. doesn't mean a whole, that doesn't mean a whole lot to even the average uh, primary voter. The TLR is supporting her. But what it does mean is that big money folks in the Republican Party who have now started to shy away from Paxton because he has so many legal problems and new accusations against him, there could be a federal indictment coming now against the guy and all that. To me, it indicates that the big money folks in the Republican Party don't have any faith in George P. Bush and the way he's running his campaign, right? Because I think that's where they would go if they didn't have a third option like Guzman. So I think it could turn into a real race where maybe, you know, any of these folks could be the winner. But I think you're going to see the support for these different folks spread out quite a bit. Yeah. And I think, and, and, and look at what's happening. It's like, here we are in June and we have mm-hmm. like candidates all over the place the last couple of weeks, you know, announcing for other offices, you know, or announcing not to run, you know, for governor or for whatever. And it's like, and so uh, like the energy that's happening, particularly within the Republican ranks right now, it shows you like, again, our primary is March 3rd right now. You know, it's like that could change, of course, because redistricting, but like that means it's only about 200 days of campaigning until the first absentee ballots would be coming in you know it's just like that's not a lot of time if you're going to take out an incumbent whether it's you know greg abbott or ken paxton uh or you know dan patrick if you're going to run against one of those guys and be successful you got to be out of the box now you got to start building a name for yourself you got to start getting around the state and you see that with guzman and even george p they have to introduce themselves to a lot of voters who are like going okay why you you know, t- tell yeah, right. me about, you know, you have 200 days to raise the money and pr- produce the message that's going to take out a well-funded incumbent that's probably going to have Donald Trump in his back pocket. Right. Maybe. And so how right. are you going to do that? Mm-hmm. And maybe. And as like we, t- you know, as we talked about before, um, uh, P and uh, and Paxton, the two P's, <laughs> uh, they are put, pushing in all their chips on Donald Trump. If he yeah. endorses either one of them, the other one is, is sunk, I think. They have no other argument, right? Everything's yeah. about Trump. Um, listen to this. Dana Lesh, uh, she scores some of these big interviews with uh, Texas politicos. She had uh, Commissioner Bush on her show, and she wanted to talk about a wide range of issues. But, of course, she wanted to first say uh, to the commissioner that, look, Paxton's out there attacking you as just you know, somebody who's just basically trying to climb the political ladder. Right. Paxton is saying that George P. Bush just wants to be president. And so he can't continue to be land commissioner. He needs to move on up. 
and uh, Paxton has said that uh, Bush was going to have a problem. He would have a problem raising enough money to run against somebody like Dan Patrick, for example, which Bush and Patrick have clashed quite a bit, especially over the issues surrounding the Alamo. Uh, so maybe there's something to that. I don't know. Uh, I think the lieutenant governor has something like $20 million in the bank. Uh, Paxton has said that for himself, that fundraising is going to be a challenge. So maybe there could be a sort of even playing field here. It's it's not that Bush doesn't have access to some of the kind of money that the Bush network has access to. I mean, his father is still Jeb Bush, right? Um, so listen to Dana Lesh's question here, and then we'll get to uh, P's answer. I want to get this out of the way, not to have the interview go as me, you know, me pitting you up against Ken Paxton, but there's some there's certain things that are said that I think a lot of voters that are watching you that may be unfamiliar with you or unfamiliar with your record or background, they may be kind of wondering for themselves. Because whenever anybody goes for Texas land commissioner, the first thought that pops into my mind is, hmm, where else is this person going to go? Because once you become land commi- Texas land commissioner, you know, there's kind of a ladder that you climb and you can't come out of Texas and run for the presidency unless you've been land commissioner. And that's one of the things that Paxton had said about you. He said that he also doubted your sincerity of support for former President Trump. He said that he's got a mentality that he's going to be president someday going into into that. And then he said that he's just going after, talking about you, that you're just going after Paxton's seat because you didn't want to go after Abbott's or go after LG because of fundraising issues. Just to get all of that out of the way. I mean, that kind of seems kind of like low-hanging fruit for obviously your opponent. But what do you say to, to stuff like that for people who point that out? Well, that's a lot to process, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Was George W. Bush ever land commissioner? No. <laughs> he ran, he went straight. He went straight. He went straight for governor. Right? Yeah, and, and, uh, and his lower was office Ann was Richards. Neither was mm-hmm. LBJ. <laughs> neither right. or John Connolly. You know, neither. You know, like I'm not sure what she's talking about. I have to go back through the annals of uh, history to see if Texas had a land commissioner uh, ascend to the presidency sometime in the last I'm, twenty years. If it ever happened. Please correct us if it ever happened. Uh, I think the lower office that uh, W started with was owning the Texas Rangers. Yeah. Right. Um, Okay. So you heard all of that. She threw basically she threw everything at Bush that Paxton has been saying about uh, Commissioner Bush. And here's what he had to say uh, in response. Well, I'm focused on the here and the now. Uh, I've been privileged to serve my country and our nation's military for 10 years. And I've been privileged to serve as land commissioner for eight. And when I look at the statewide offices, I see a crisis of moral leadership a lack of moral compass in this important key law enforcement position. And it's required to have the lead prosecutor of the state be above approach. And I don't want to delve into the details in terms of his criminal indictment and the FBI investigation and the allegations entrusted by Christian attorneys that have since left the office. My focus is on this office, 4,200 employees that are needing a leader, somebody that can step in, roll up their sleeves and fight for conservative values in the courthouse. And that's what the race is. And so he's punching down. Uh, I'll let him do that, but I'm just going to focus on the issues. He's punching down. I guess, Jeremy, he would uh, like to be thought of as the underdog in this whole thing. Bush would like to be. I think Paxton and Bush are both kind of going for wanting to be the underdog. Paxton talked about, you know, not uh, seeing his fundraising going very well, at least at this point. Bush is saying that Paxton's uh, punching down. Uh, here's one thing that you can't do. Here's, here's what he's doing wrong. Let me help. Here's what he's doing wrong. You can't do this where you say, especially for Republican primary voters in Texas. I've seen this too many times. You can't just say, well, look, I don't really want to get into the fact that the guy is going to be, you know, probably under federal indictment and all the accusations against it. No, you don't need to do that. You need to go right at it. You need to say this guy is corrupt. This guy, you know, he's got all these accusations against him. Look who's accusing him of doing this, this, this and this. It's all some of the most conservative people who have probably ever served in the Texas Attorney General's office, right? These are not liberals who accuse Paxton of abusing his office and doing favors for some shady developer in Austin and all this other stuff. These are these are rock rib conservatives who say this guy is corrupt and you saw where Bush the other day was saying that, and this is, you know, he's trying to get out there and do more of what I'm saying. He was calling Paxton a loser, a loser, like like Donald Trump would say. He's a loser because he lost the case uh, challenging Obamacare. You have to do it like that. I remember going to a debate between Dan Patrick and former Lieutenant Governor David Dewhurst when Patrick was on track to beat him for that office back in, uh, back in 2014. And... I remember um, there was there were some folks in the crowd 
who were really impressed with Patrick because he was really taking the fight to Dewhurst. They yeah. loved the fact that he was, and this is the way they put it, not me. They liked the fact that he was kind of a jerk about it, that he was just going straight at him yep. and, and, and making the argument that he is not conservative enough. He completely mishandled the way that the Senate uh, you know, operated when Wendy Davis was doing her filibuster against abortion legislation and all this other stuff. And the guy told me that he liked Patrick for that reason. And he said he liked uh, Ted Cruz for that reason. And, I, and then I pointed out that, but you know, I said, you know, when, um, when, when Cruz was running against Dewhurst, he was also punching at Dewhurst. And Patrick was one of the ones defending Dewhurst from Cruz's attacks just two years earlier in 2012. I was trying to remember the timeline of all this. Yeah. And I said, does that give you any pause about that? I mean, Patrick's now attacking Dewhurst, um, but he was the one defending and the, it didn't make a difference to the person. They just liked the fact that they were on the attack. They were strident in their views. And that's how you got to do this. If you want to well, win it, one of these Republican primaries in Texas, you can't be holding back and playing nice and saying, oh, you know, the guy might be corrupt, but I don't even want to talk about that. You do talk about it. Go straight at him. And especially in an incumbent. If you're going to take on an incumbent, uh, you have to tell voters why that person needs to be fired. It can't be yep. just like, I'm a good person and I'm not going to talk about that guy. No, no. You have to give me a list of why we need to fire that guy. Yep. It's like, and, 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 and I think that's what, you know, when you saw, you know, if you go really back in time, when George W. Bush was running against Ann Richards, you know, he mm-hmm. had to make that case. You know, you had to make that case when you were Mark White running against Bill Clement and Bill Clement against Mark White. You have mm-hmm. to give us a reason. You can't just say, I'm a good candidate and why not me? You know, it's like it has to be more than that. Fire them and hire me. Yep. That is the whole argument when you're running against an incumbent. So we'll see how this goes. I think this is going to be I, – I don't like the Jeff Rowe quote. He's one of the political consultants. A lot of the national uh, – and Dana Lesh was talking about this. Um, he, Jeff Rowe said something like, this is the holy war of Texas is this race. Wow. It's a little – he's overplaying a little bit. It makes me wonder, does he have a candidate in this? Um, yeah. I'm not. I'm not <laughs> sure. Well – We'll see. Uh, But watch this space. This is going to be a blast to cover. I'm going to say this again, Jeremy, because we're out of show. I'm done. I don't have any more show in me. You look, you look worn down now. Yeah. I'm going to be honest. You you started out looking worn down. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But only because it's been quite a week. If you love this show, you know, you do subscribe Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, however you listen to your favorite podcasts and be a subscriber at quorumreport.com, houstonchronicle.com. We will see you here next week to, Do this all again.